This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turable Land. And now you're going to get The Health Report podcast with its new duration. Yep, a little bit longer, a little bit more healthy goodness for you. Today, you might have heard before of something called synesthesia. It's where people's senses combine. Probably the best-known type is where people might hear colours, but we'll be delving into a lesser-known type. What we know is that these different areas of the brain are involved. What we don't know is how do you know which colour goes with which type of motion, for example, if they are overlapping? We have another area of the brain that's primarily involved in processing object shape. That's synesthesia later. Tiran, you probably don't know, but I actually do have a form of synesthesia. Oh, we should have done the story about you. What's your form? Well, mine's much less dramatic. So you can get all sorts of things with synesthesia. So mine is that when I think of numbers, I think in shapes. So it's it's very hard to describe. So, for example, if I think of um, ages, I think of kind of not to 10 going up towards the right and then it takes a left-hand turn and then it goes up to 20 and then you go on into the, you know, the reaches of ageing. If I think about dates and I think of the 20th century, I think of um, you know, the first 20 years of the 20th century going in one direction and another. And then, so I think of numbers as shapes. That is so interesting. Are you good at numbers in general? Crap at maths, but quite good at remembering phone, phone numbers. I don't know whether that's got anything to do with it. Yeah, it's almost like a mnemonic in your brain. That's fascinating. Also coming up today, we've got uh, the latest on low back pain. Well, as someone who has had low back pain on and off over the years, I will be listening very closely during that chat. Yeah, my synesthesia, your back pain, we're going to get accused of just doing things that we're only interested in ourselves. <laughs> well, I do have something that lots of people are very curious about at the moment. This new generation of weight loss drugs, they work when you're taking them, but what happens when you stop? And also we've got, in addition to low back pain, we've also got a dilemma about people who've got cancer and pain and whether they're actually on the right drugs. We'll also be looking at where we're at in Australia with our dental landscape. It could definitely be better, according to a recent Senate report. But first, Norman, I wanted to ask you a COVID question. It's something that's on a lot of people's minds at the moment, given that we're in a surge of the virus at the moment. Rapid antigen tests came out. They had an expiry date on them. Products usually do. And some of them have had like new expiry dates put on over the top. And at least with the conversations that I've been having with, with people, that's really got them scratching their heads. Yeah, and people spend a lot of money on them. Well, I've looked at the literature here and there is quite a lot of flexibility on, uh, on expiry dates. Now, we don't, I don't want to usurp the Therapeutic Goods Administration and the advice that they put out. You should have a look at that. But, it, but from the research that I've seen, if the expiry dates... I think they've looked up to maybe four or five months after the date of the expiry and they still work quite well. And that's not just COVID rapid antigen tests, HIV rapid antigen tests seem to be the same there. So I'm not, we're not advising on the health report that you should use out-of-date rapid antigen tests, but if they're what you've got and you've got COVID symptoms, you're probably okay at the moment. Well, that's reassuring. Now on to a story that I promised just now. You've probably heard of semaglutide and you've almost definitely heard of one of its brand names, Zempic. But semaglutide is just one of a class of drugs called GLP-1 agonists and they're having a big moment. They were originally approved as diabetes drugs, but their popularity really took off when people realised that they also helped you lose weight. As a culture, we're very practised at not looking 
weight loss gift horses in the mouth. But as more data comes out about these drugs, it's becoming clear they're no silver bullet. One of the most recent studies deals with terzepatide, which drug manufacturer Eli Lilly markets under the brand names Manjaro and Zetbound. I've been speaking with pharmaceutical analyst Costanza Alciati about the rebound effect people are having when they stop taking the drugs. Thank you so much for inviting me. So one of the big questions with GLP agonists, it has been that, yes, they work, but what happens when you stop taking them? And this study goes partway to answering that question. So basically, the results from the Surmount 4 trial show that uh, even in the case of terzepatide, which is currently the strongest, the highest efficacy in reducing weight, uh, and uh, improving the cardiometabolic effects uh, in type 2 diabetes patients and uh, in obesity patients. These results have shown that tizepatide also causes this weight regain upon its withdrawal, which is about 14% of the body weight that was lost is going to be regained. So basically, this happens for all GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, semaglutide, also has this rebound um, effect upon withdrawal, liraglutide as well. And basically because GLP-1 receptor agonists, they are long-term medicines to be taken for life. Right. So it's not a quick fix. It's sort of like you're on this indefinitely. Yeah, exactly. Basically the trials have shown that patients have an improvement in their HbA1c levels, other cardiometabolic factors, uh, they experience weight loss, but in some cases, a percentage of the weight lost during the treatment is gained back very rapidly. And more importantly, I think these cardiometabolic factors, which were improved during the treatment, revert back to baseline. And this is a very big problem because it means that basically the patient lost all the improvements that he made during the, the therapy. So we've got this recent paper that's just come out that's been sponsored by Eli Lilly, which make two terzepatide drugs. What does this add to this space that we didn't already know? Yeah, the thing is, I believe that most patients don't necessarily know how much like it is important to continue the treatment because all these GLP-1 medicines can cause this weight regain upon withdrawal. And some patients might be confused of why it is happening. Basically, it is because it's a long-term medicines. And the same thing happened for semaglutide, which is like Ozempic, for example, Ozempic and Wigovic. And these, all these trials also show the reversal of cardiometabolic risks uh, in some patients, where they think it's more important. It's not just the weight that they're regaining, but it's also that they're losing those health, other health benefits, those Diabetes markers are coming back as well. So in Australia, we know that there's really severe shortages of this class of drugs, of the ones that have been approved here. So it might be that a patient does understand that they might need to be on it long term, but it's simply not available. Yes, exactly. There are like different factors that have come into place. Shortages, as you're, uh, as you're saying, there are shortages worldwide, uh, I believe, everywhere. All countries are experiencing this kind of shortages for some of the GLP-1 receptor agonists and disrupts the treatment of a lot of patients, as you're saying. Another thing is that their tolerability due to these gastrointestinal uh, side effects, for some patients, the side effects are too strong, so they want to stop treatment. Uh, so the tolerability profile of GLP-1 could also be improved. 
Another thing is the pricing. As I'm sure you know, it's they're very expensive medicines. They're not covered by insurance everywhere, especially for obesity. So in that case, I don't see them as being like a long-term treatment for life for most patients. But if they're not a long-term treatment because they're too expensive, then this rebound effect is probably going to occur no matter when they stop taking it. Yeah, exactly. Like they are designed to be long-term, but the price kind of makes it hard for everyone to be on the treatment long-term, exactly. So what's the message we should be taking away from this data set and the others that seem to show similar things? So basically regarding the shortages, the manufacturer companies are trying to boost the production. We still don't know how long these shortages will go on for. And this rebound effect at the moment is still happening. So regarding the shortages, there is little we can try to plan. But I would say for patients to consider well with their doctor, with their insurance companies, whether it is something that can be maintained long term, uh, whether it is a therapeutic option for them uh, to be maintained long term, unless they're ready to lose some results. But I don't think anyone would want to lose some results after being on a on such a powerful drug. So I think patients and doctors should better consider their option, economical, whether there is availability for this medicine long-term and whether the safety profile could meet the patient expectations as well. So it's just considering both economically and the availability of the therapy, whether it could be maintained. I know that Doctors are almost always prescribing this very um, responsibly and that they're not doing the wrong thing. But you do hear anecdotal stories of people, say, taking these drugs short term to slim down for a wedding or you hear about it being used in Hollywood. This study really indicates that that, that it just can't be the way people use it. Yes, exactly. Also because there are shortages problem. They have been studied in the type 2 diabetes and obesity population, so we don't have data on healthy individual just to lose like a couple of pounds we don't have any like scientific data on that of what it happens but it is a real medicine for chronic diseases so definitely like it shouldn't be taken just for vanity purposes i hope that in the future like these shortages problem this pricing problem and yeah in general the availability of these glp1 receptor agonists becomes more available worldwide hopefully like the pharmaceutical companies can meet the demand, improve their tolerability and make them more available. Because I really think GLP-1 receptor agonists are a good class of drug and a lot of patients still need to have them and to be able to have a benefit from them. And I really hope that it becomes uh, more available to the public. Costanza, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Costanza Alciati is a pharmaceutical analyst with Global Data. You're with The Health Report. So, Tegan, one of the stories we return to again and again is which painkillers, analgesics, work for what pain? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I just always thought that pain was pain, but it's not. No, there are two types of pain broadly. There's probably lots of types of pain. Neuropathic pain, which can include long-term pain where there's no obvious physical cause anymore. There might have been one to start with, but there isn't in the end. And nociceptive pain, where there is something harmful going on in the body causing pain at that time. Like cancer? Like cancer, exactly. Now, the default with cancer pain has been to put people on opioids, drugs like morphine, but they have side effects. They make you drowsy, mess with your gut, causing nausea and constipation, can affect your breathing, 
and may even not be good for the cancer itself. And then there's addiction and dependence. According to a review of scientific literature by researchers at the University of Sydney, the studies of the treatment of cancer pain leave much to be desired, and non-opioids might be at least as effective for some people, like aspirin, for example. The lead author was Dr. Christina Abdel-Shahid, who's in the University of Sydney's School of Public Health. Christina, welcome back to The Health Report. Thanks for having me, Norman. So the reviews you looked at for this review studied what exactly? So this was the most comprehensive review on the topic of uh, cancer opioid medicines for cancer pain management. And we looked at basically everything, clinical trial evidence, guideline review recommendations. And we also looked at observational studies, uh, evaluating the harms of opioids, the effect of opioids uh, on the immune system and potential interactions with anti-cancer therapies as well. And what did you find? So we found a couple of things. I think the main finding from this review was, as you mentioned earlier, that surprisingly for background cancer pain, so constant pain at rest uh, that is caused by cancer, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines such as aspirin, diclofenac, paroxicam, ketorolac can be just as good as some commonly used opioid medicines. And I just want to to clarify that this is pain outside of the end-of-life situation. So we're not talking about the use of things like morphine uh, for pe- to alleviate suffering um, and respiratory d- depression or distress at the end of life. We're talking about people with chronic cancer pain who have in, usually have a good chance at, at survival. And it's in these people that um, anti-inflammatory medicines and the antidepressant medicine, imipramine, may be just as effective as opioids. And this antidepressant, imipramine, it's probably not the antidepressant effect. It's, it's been a drug that's been shown to have effects beyond its antidepressant effect on the brain. Uh, that That is true. Um, and it's also a medicine that doesn't come without side effects. So I think what's important and the key takeaway from this review is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach, but it is important for doctors and patients to have access to this information to be able to make informed decisions. The other finding that was surprising from this review was that commonly used opioids such as morphine, hydromorphone, oxycodone, there, there was very limited or even no evidence comparing those medicines to placebo in rigorous clinical trials. So the reality is outside of the end-of-life situation, we actually have important unanswered questions about the effectiveness and tolerability of these medicines in this population group. And there's a, and there's a general belief that morphine is the best of the bunch, That's certainly the prevailing view uh, globally. And even if you look at uh, guideline recommendations from Europe, Japan, uh, and various other countries, you'll certainly find that morphine is the number one recommended opioid for cancer pain management. Without the evidence to back it up. That's the very interesting result from from this review. So it actually, um, there is a very obvious gap in the evidence with regards to the effectiveness of morphine for background cancer pain and breakthrough cancer pain for that matter. Uh, So this is something that definitely uh, requires 
urgent sort of attention from clinicians, researchers, and needs to be addressed in rigorous clinical trials in the future. What's the story that these drugs may interfere with the cancer itself? Yeah, so Norman, I just wanted to um, stress that this is very preliminary evidence. It's by no means definitive, but there has been some small retrospective studies in humans uh, which have shown that there is a potential for some opioids like morphine, like oxycodone, like fentanyl, uh, to interact with common anti-cancer therapies such as checkpoint uh, inhibitors. Um, Now, this comes from... Uh, very small-sized studies, retrospective in nature, so it's not the best quality evidence. But they are sending a signal that perhaps we need to look at, examine this more closely in prospective clinical trials or prospective cohort studies, because if that's true, that there is some form of a negative interaction that may impact survival rates, for example, or may impact the efficacy of these anti-cancer treatments, then I think people out there will want to know about that. So in summary then, there's a good argument from what you're saying is to not jump in straight away to these um, heavy-duty opioids and to build up from there with this with the stock of medicines that are really off the shelf in many ways that can be used before you have to resort to them, which is probably what a lot of pain specialists do already. Certainly, um, what we're suggesting is judicious prescribing of these medicines. Currently, what we're seeing is that Uh, Yes, many doctors do prescribe these non-opioid alternatives prior to considering, you know, more heavy-duty opioids. Uh, But in many cases, depending on the severity of the pain, some people will uh, go straight to an opioid medicine. And because of the prevailing view that these are the most effective for moderate to severe cancer pain, and what we found was that some of these more... um, basic, I guess, uh, analgesic medicines or uh, ones that aren't associated with the same risks as opioids like dependency and overdose and so on can be just as effective even for moderate to severe cancer pain. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Norman. Dr. Christina Abdel-Shahid, who's at the University of Sydney School of Public Health. More on pain later when you'll hear about new research into low back pain and how long you can expect to have it. But first, a word about your mouth. The fact that your teeth, at least as far as Medicare is concerned, aren't classed as part of your body and therefore aren't covered by the scheme is a well-worn topic, not just here on The Health Report. In the lead-up to the last federal election, there were renewed calls for dental to be part of Medicare. It didn't happen, but what followed was a Senate inquiry into dental services in Australia. Its report, aptly named A System in Decay, was handed down late last year, finding that services remain inequitable. Leslie Russell is an adjunct associate professor with the Menzies Centre for Health Policy at the University of Sydney, and she's been watching this space closely for a decade or more. Welcome, Leslie. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. You say that the Senate report should be seen as a failed opportunity. Why is that? Look, it's a really excellent, scary summary of where we currently are with dental and oral health, but it actually doesn't tell us anything that we didn't already know. Uh, Perhaps the only thing it tells us is that the numbers have gotten worse since the last report. So what I think we were hoping for was a a set of actionable recommendations, a sort of a roadmap 
to get policy development and implementation underway. Um, many of the recommendations that the report made were sort of a cop-out, kind of generalities of things that said the different levels of government should work together. Well, we've known that for, what, 20 years. But, but perhaps it's really put it back on the agenda again, and there are several other things that, are, that could and should happen this year that, that perhaps will be a real driver this time around. So the government has to make a response to this report. Uh, it should be delivered by February. There is a the national oral health plan expires this year, so that will have to be reworked. The national partnership agreements under which the federal government funds the states and territories to deliver public dental services have been funded on a year by year by year basis, and and that's a real opportunity in this year's budget to put them on a a longer term, more sustained funding basis, and to up the money. And the Albanese government has yet to respond to recommendations that were made in the review of the Dental Benefits Act um, that addresses the inequalities and the poor uptake of the child dental benefits schedule. So taken together, if you're an optimist, you could think <laughs> perhaps this time around the government is going to get started down the road. They're going to give us a vision. They're going to have a roadmap. They're going to get... Uh, bipartisan agreement, tripartisan, because I guess we need to keep the, get the Greens in there, so that when we get started down the road, if there's a change in government, that progress can continue and won't be upset because the next government wants to do something different. What sort of items would you see going into this roadmap? Look, I am not somebody who thinks that we can instantly have a denticare program, a universal healthcare program for everyone. It's just, uh, first of all, it's impossible to implement a big program like that, even if we had the money. And the money is, is certainly a big issue. But I think you can certainly have that as a vision with a series of steps. And, and, and I guess I see uh, two or th maybe three, maybe four important <laughs> things. The first is that dental caries are a can be prevented. It's a preventive disease. Uh, if if there's fluoride in the water supply, if kids very early on when they still have their baby teeth get get appropriate, uh, ed, their parents get appropriate education and they get appropriate uh, attention, um, we know because there are lots of Australians walking around with perfect teeth with hardly a filling, at the same time that there are lots of Australians walking around with terrible teeth. So prevention is way up there. Then I think we clearly have to do something for those who are most at risk. And I would list these as obviously the people who are geographically isolated because if you live in a rural and a remote area, we all know how hard it is to get access to any sort of health care, and that includes dental. And But people in aged care, uh, poor oral hygiene, poor dentition is a major cause of malnutrition and that affects 
falls and uh, frailty, all of those sorts of things. People who are severely disabled often have many of the same problems and they need specialised dental care. And then there's a group of Australians with certain chronic diseases and cancers, people with diabetes, with uh, cardiovascular disease, HIV, AIDS, people who take certain drugs that that actually really affect the quality of um, their oral health and th- and they need specialised attention too. So you um, said and- that you... Sorry. And you said I'll, that you... I'll add one more thing All that right, you then. can't do any of this unless you have the workforce to do it in the in the workforce in the right places. So you've said you've got two, no three, no four things that are a must have. <laughs> Talk to me about cost. What is this going to cost? What would it cost? Well, it depends how you start. Um, the the uh, Senate report did some costings, but most people who've paid attention to this think that they've severely underestimated the cost. They say that a universal dental care program would cost about $10 billion when fully implemented. But the way they've done that costing, they're really only looking at those people who are not currently covered. And if you genuinely had a universal program as opposed to a program that was more targeted by means testing, for example, then the bill would probably be closer to $20 billion a year. Now, that's a huge amount. It would be offset by significant amounts of money in terms of what's spent, for example, getting kids, uh, have the children having their teeth pulled in hospital under general anaesthesia. Right, so there's offsets there, but if, if you've got a cool $10 billion, give Leslie a call. We do need to leave it there, but thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you. You're very welcome. Leslie Russell is Adjunct Associate Professor at the Menzies Centre for Health Policy at the University of Sydney. Well, we certainly wouldn't rely on the medical profession to, to, to make up for the deficit. All we got taught, taught in medical school was how to pull a molar. <laughs> and all I remember is it's a figure of eight movement, but you, know, you wouldn't want me to try there. Look, let's, let's get back to pain and in one of the commonest locations, low back pain. How long does it last after it starts and with how much disability? Doctors and physios have been reassuring people with low back pain for years now not to lie down, avoid opioid painkillers and in general keep moving and you'll eventually be fine. Is that true though? Well, before you go on, I just want to chime in because we use low back pain as a term all the time, but what do you actually mean? Well, for this particular study, this review, it was pain in the low back, in other words, below the chest and above the buttocks, which may or may not go down into your legs. Now, a group of Australian researchers has brought together the evidence from around the world on acute low back pain, less than acute low back pain and persistent low back pain to see what people experience and for how long. The senior author was Professor Lorimer Mosley of the University of South Australia. Welcome back to The Health Report, Lorimer. G'day, Norman. Thanks for having me. The first thing I'd say looking at your review is that the quality of the studies you looked at was pretty crap all round. So I'm not sure how you can draw (laughs) any conclusions well, I, I think that's quite harsh, to be honest. I think we were we certainly were disappointed with the uh, the quality and, and number of studies on the chronic back pain group, um, and that's the group that we call it persistent or chronic. Uh, they're people who sort of more enter than three the studies, months. yeah, where they've had they've already had back pain for more than three months. But the 
there's a bigger body of, of evidence and I completely agree that some of the primary studies are crap and we do suffer a little bit from that sort of rubbish in, rubbish out problem that you can get with meta-analyses. But there, you know, there's 20,000 patients represented and pretty good follow-ups for that acute and subacute stage. So I think we can be really confident that if you've if you well, yeah. someone says to you in that amount of time, you know, up to up to six weeks, um, you've got back pain. Well, there's a there's a good chance that your back pain will recover. Okay, well, let's get to the numbers from the study. So, if you've got mm. acute back pain, your back's thrown out, you're really sore, and six weeks after the pain started, how long on average is it going to last? And and how many people slip through to the next stage? Yeah, great way of thinking about it. I think we can we can more easily answer the second one so that we've we've got about 70% of people recovering in that next 6 weeks if you you've got acute back pain you don't know you've put something out i want to i, I always try and jump on that assumption you've you've yeah, got back pain it just comes on we've got to get yeah. rid of the idea of you know things being wrecked because most back pain nothing is wrecked yep. in your back and there's no one event uh, yeah exactly and and then I guess if if you if you do slip through the cracks for you know past that first milestone of of six weeks, then we've got you know about seventy percent of those people are going to recover. And that's what you call subacute uh, back pain. So it's gone down a notch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you know you, the fact that it's still there does elevate your your risk of it not recovering as quickly as you'd like. Uh, but when it's still hanging around at more than three months. Uh, that's when the data that are available, and as you said, you know they're not perfect at that level at all, but they do, they do uh, agree with the general perception out there with all the other data we've got that once you've got chronic back pain, it's it tends to hang around. You tend to to have it for a, a lot longer, and recovery rates are much lower once it's been around for that sort of more than three months. Now, with Christina Abdel Shahid uh, a little while ago on the health report. Uh, we use some big words, nociceptive and neuropathic pain. So neuropathic pain is where the original cause has gone. There's nothing left that's physical. It's real pain, but it's you know, it's very hard to define why you're getting it. And then there's nociceptive pain, which is where presumably at the beginning of the process, you actually have done, you know, your back has degenerated or whatever, and you've got actually a physical cause. So when you've got persistent pain, is this this neuropathic pain where the back is healed but you've got pain and we just don't know why. Uh, not really, no. So we we now categorise pains in as three versions, actually. So no. Oh God, I'm going to have to go back and talk to Christina yeah. again. Right, okay. In fact, you don't. You, you really don't have to worry too much about that. You know, like most acute back pain will be associated with with some degree of maybe inflammation. Now, there's a lot of acute back pains that take care of themselves. We don't know why they started, and that may not even be associated with what we're describing as nociception and nociception is a really unfamiliar word all all it means if people think about noxious chemicals there's pathology you know, noxious there chemicals, yeah danger well there's there may not be pathology but there is activation of danger detectors that are in the tissues right so we activate danger detectors often through the course of our normal daily life and that's what keeps us safe and acute back pain is thought to be really appropriate to keep us safe during that little threat the next category that you talked about is neuropathic. That's when you've got a you can demonstrate an injury or disease within your nervous system, and and that requires tests, um, particular nerve tests or a diagnosis like diabetic neuropathy or muscular uh, or multiple sclerosis or a brain injury. 
the third category, and I think that's that's more what we're talking about with chronic pain, is called, they're calling it nociplastic. And we've done surveys with hundreds of consumers uh, and said, what do you think we should call this? Because that name is stupid. Uh, and they they come up with what we now use, and that is pain system hypersensitivity. And you're right. We what it what it acknowledges is that pain is unfortunately it's it's messy and complex, and there's many factors that contribute to pain system hypersensitivity. And chronic back pain fits into that category 99.9 percent of the time. And so the what, approach that we have to take sorry, is not about a single pathology because that's not the problem. We have to take a broader approach to the problem. So just briefly and finally, can you predict then who gets to what pl- place in that route, in that pathway to persistent pain or not? Is it um, physical situation? Is it how your GP treated you? Is it what your GP told you? Because there's some research saying, look, if the GP's mm, really sure. negative about it and says, you know, this is really bad, you've got to lie down to it and blah, 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 um, you actually are more likely to end up with persistent pain than not. I mean, what are the key factors that people need to take into account here? Yeah, well, the key factors are not the ones that you expect, right? So the key factors are not the, the type of injury or even the extent of the injury. But in answer to your question, no, we can't reliably predict who's who's going to recover quickly and who's not. But we do know things that change your likelihood, and they are things like you've mentioned. The you know how worried are you about this? Uh, how what what else is going on in your life at that time? What other threats? How healthy are you? How are you sleeping? Uh, and that's we have to think really really broad, broadly about it. I guess the the key point from this study is that there are treatments that train the brain and body, the the pain system hypersensitivity and the body, and those treatments are the best treatments we have. So it's not like we don't have interventions that work. We're just not getting them to these people with chronic back pain. And that's, I think, where the attention has to go. We're running out of time, but very briefly, what are those treatments? Well, there's there's a range of treatments, but they all have a, in in one thing in common, and that is they spend a lot of time shifting your understanding of what the problem of back pain actually is, away from diagnosis like a slip disc or arthritis or degeneration, these sort of things, because that that's not the cause, towards understanding that there are many factors that influence pain, and the mix of factors will be different for each person. The consistent bits are movement understanding the problem and individualized self self mastery you need a good coach to help you do it Lorimer thank you thanks for having me Nolan Lorimer Mosley who is professor of clinical neuroscience and physiotherapy at the University of South Australia we all see the world differently but a percentage of us have sensory superpowers it's called synesthesia you might taste colors or feel sounds if you have it The idea that other people don't experience the world this way can be a surprise. And because we're all walking around with our own idea of normal, synesthesia can be hard to detect. Shelby Trainer has the story. When you're walking down the street, your brain cannot possibly process everything that's coming into your sensory systems. And so what we do is we select what's most relevant. Let's say you're on a walk. The birds are chirping, the trees are swaying gently in the wind... You see a patch of green grass in the corner of your eye. Actually, your eyes can't perceive colour in the periphery. Your perception that there's colour in the periphery is essentially made up. OK, so you're seeing but not actually seeing the green grass in the corner of your eye. 
and you think about turning around and heading back home. You feel like you're aware of your surroundings, right? Like you're seeing the world as it actually is? Well, according to Anina Rich, not exactly. We get this impression that we see everything around us, that we're aware of everything around us, and most of it's made up. It's pretty amazing, right? <laughs> My name's Anina Rich, and I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Macquarie University in the School of Psychological Sciences. Professor Rich is interested in sensory integration. This is how our brains take in information from our eyes, ears, nose, mouth, skin, all the different sensory organs, and make sense of it. How the brain puts together information, even within one sense, is still a challenge to understand, let alone once you start going across the senses. And with sensory integration, it's really fascinating because we know that different parts of the brain primarily process information of certain types. For example, the part of the brain known as V4, towards the back of the head, is known to process colour, while the middle temporal area is associated with the perception of motion. But what if you have a coloured moving thing, right? What we know is that these different areas of the brain are involved. What we don't know is how do you know which colour goes with which type of motion, for example, if they are overlapping. Or when you're looking at a scene with many different objects, you've got many different colours, you've got many different shapes. We have another area of the brain that's primarily involved in processing object shape. Pretend, again, that you're on your walk and you see a red car driving at 80 kilometres an hour and the driver is blasting the radio. So now you've got a moving coloured object that also has a sound. You're integrating the information of the sound of the car the look of the car, the colour, different parts of your brain are processing that information and yet somehow, in a seemingly effortless manner, this incredibly complex process results in us basically perceiving a, a seamless movie of the world around us. For the most part, our brains do an impressive job at presenting our perception of the world as the world. Grass is green, birds sound like this when they chirp, but our perception of the world is subjective. My green is not your green. And we can never know what it's like to experience birdsong from another person's perspective. But there is a phenomenon that demonstrates just how much our perception of the world differs. So basically, I can hear the motion of moving objects, but to everyone else, those objects don't make sense. Jordan Ratcliffe has something called synesthesia. For example, like, you're blinking, I can hear you blink right now, which is really weird, I know. <laughs> But yeah, I can hear blinking, I can hear flashing lights like car indicators. Basically anything that moves makes a sound for me. At the moment, there's not a lot of research into Jordan's specific type of synesthesia. It's called a bunch of different things. It's known variously as hearing motion or visually evoked auditory experiences. As Jordan said, in hearing motion synesthesia... Moving objects that would be pretty much silent to you or me evoke a sound for her. I've heard that people with synesthesia don't know that it's not normal and I couldn't understand that. I was like, how do you not understand that that's something different? And then I experienced it firsthand. I had no idea that I had it. And yeah, I was in her lab for about two years and I still didn't know I had it. Her lab, as in Professor Rich's lab... Jordan was doing synesthesia research and it still took her that long to notice that she perceived the world differently to everyone else. I was doing like an experiment for her. She was testing out a game they would be getting research participants to play. I would hear a noise and I'd be like, oh, I can respond now. And 
I was like to someone else, this is so easy because you can hear it. And they're like, <laughs> I can't hear anything. <laughs> Professor Rich likes to point out that synesthesia is not a disability. It's a different way of perceiving the world that's prominent enough that people like Jordan can verbalise it. But even though Jordan can tell me that she hears a sound every time I blink, it's difficult for her to describe what that sound is. It's very hard. It's almost like I don't have the vocabulary to describe it. I attribute it to say, if you were explaining what a banana tastes like to someone who's never had a banana before, it's difficult, right? And that's one of the hard things, right? People can tell you about their experiences and that's fascinating. It gives you really rich insights into what it might be like. But in the end, you need to be able to objectively measure something so that you can understand the cognitive mechanisms underneath. What's happening in the brain? How does it interact with, say, attention and, and other multisensory interactions? We don't have insight into that. So even if you're very articulate about your synesthesia, you can't really tell me what's happening in your brain. Objective evidence of synesthesia is harder to come by. But in 2021, Professor Rich and PhD student Lena Teichman did just that. They showed non-synesthetes the colour red or green and recorded their brain signals. Then they showed synesthetes a grayscale letter that, for them, evoked the colour red or green. So now there's nothing that would evoke colour in the display for anybody else, but for our synesthetes, they report that they see red or green based on these items. Even though the items had no colour at all, the brain signals were the same. It was as if they were really seeing red or green. Importantly, there was a little delay. So a few hundred milliseconds doesn't sound like a long time, but in processing in the brain, that is a long time. And so that's really consistent with a view of synesthesia that the concept of a letter, in this case, has a colour attached, which conceptualises synesthesia as much like what happens when you think of a banana. So if I show you a grayscale picture of a banana, we know that that automatically activates the colour yellow for most people. It also activates that it's edible, whether or not you like it, that it's a fruit, that it starts with b. All of these aspects tend to be automatically activated when you see the word banana or, or a grayscale image. So perhaps for synesthetes what happens is when we show them a grayscale A, it activates the concept of A, which for them has a colour. When letters and numbers are associated with colours for a person, that's called grapheme colour synesthesia. It's a more common topic of research than Jordan's variety, which is why Professor Rich and Jordan have teamed up to find out more about hearing motion synesthesia. We're just trying to understand more about it and find other studies that have looked into it. I'm also working with another researcher here, Dr Matthew Crossley, and we are trying to model it with code like Python and mathematical equations, basically trying to get the computer with fake neurons to produce synesthesia. It's thought up to 4% of the population experiences some type of synesthesia. Some people feel temperature changes when they hear certain sounds or see colours when exposed to a certain smell. There are a number of different theories about what might lead to synesthesia, but the short answer is we don't yet know. There seems to be a genetic component you're more likely to experience synesthesia if a family member does too. However, it's also true that all of us are prone to making associations, right? When we're born, infants, what they're doing is they are constantly 
absorbing what's going on around them and trying to link up things that make sense. So their brains are absorbing information and trying to work out, okay, when that type of electrical activity happens, that sound, and this is my carer's voice, and there's a name associated with that voice, and so on. And so we're really like little sponges hyper-associating everywhere. So some people have proposed that maybe we all have synesthesia to start with and then most of us lose it as perhaps we get more efficient ways of communicating. Despite only finding out about her synesthesia recently, knowing about it has already helped Jordan in her day-to-day life. Because, yeah, I can understand my feelings in certain environments and it's also helpful because my friends now know that I have it. A lot of my friends gesture a lot with their hands and um, sometimes I have to remind them try not to move your hands too much while you're telling me something because if they're like waving and things I can't really pay attention. In addition to just being interesting that a small proportion of the population perceive the world in a different way it also gives us insight into the way that those sort of multi-sensory integration processes might work in all of us. I also really like the fact that it is a reminder of how inherently subjective perception is. I don't have synesthesia and you don't have synesthesia, and yet when we look at the same thing, there is absolutely no way to verify that we have the same experience of that. It's just that when we compare using language, we're probably going to agree. And a synesthete comes along and says, what are you talking about? Tuesdays are blue, they're not yellow. And we're both like, what? Tuesdays aren't yellow, they're just Tuesdays. So the language then shows you that there is a difference. But actually for all of us, perception is inherently subjective. You interpret the world not as it is, but as you are. You're interpreting everything that comes into your sensory system in the context of what you already know and what you already believe. For some people, Tuesdays are blue. There's still no way to know whether that's the same blue that you see or a different blue altogether. Producer Shelby Trainer spoke with Professor Anina Rich from the Department of Cognitive Neuroscience at Macquarie University and Jordan Ratcliffe, a student who experiences these powers. And if you'd like to participate in the research, we'll have a link on our program webpage about how you can do that. Well, that's all we've got for the health report for you this week. But Norman, over on our other show, What's That Rash, we deal with a very fun and kind of spooky topic that involves you going on a trip down memory lane to your childhood. Yeah, we're talking about night terrors, and I'm going to tell you what that's got to do with Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) Uh, We actually did answer the actual question um, about night terrors in that show, which you can find by searching What's That Rash on the ABC Listen app. And we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.